Well, if you've been around church for a while, you may have felt a little out of place when we started singing the songs at the beginning. We were singing these songs that we often associate with what we call Palm Sundays. We sang these songs, Hosanna, and then even as Bobby Joe read the scripture, you may th be thinking if you're familiar with how the church calendar works, this way of setting up and following the life of Jesus, thinking, did I fall asleep and miss something? And some of us may be wishing we could just kind of skip ahead five or six weeks because normally Palm Sunday is that Sunday right before Easter. And right now we're just in the first Sunday of Lent. We have six more Sundays before we would normally celebrate Palm Sunday. So why did we sing those songs? Why are we reading this today? Well, we've been doing a series on the Gospel of Mark, looking at the story of Jesus as Mark tells it. And what I wanted to do, we've been kind of moving fairly quickly through the first part. What I want to do is now is to reach that last week of Jesus' life. From the time he comes into Jerusalem to his crucifixion and then his resurrection. And I wanted to slow things down a little bit. Because sometimes what happens as we read the story is, and even if we look at it, we're only in chapter 11 of Mark. It goes all the way through chapter 16. And so we've had three years of ministry caught up in the first 10 chapters and then one week over the course of six chapters. And so we're going to take time in the same way and kind of slow down and spend some time looking at it. But there's also an appropriate sense we're reading that story today maybe puts us in the same mindset as the crowds that were there that day. Because there's a little bit of confusion, a little bit of wondering what's going on. And in some ways, it's really kind of an odd story. At least the way it sets up and then the way it ends where you feel like, well, that's it? What's going on? So let's set the stage for the story. So first of all, it falls in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been reading the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Mark begins with Jesus coming on the scene and saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the focus of Jesus' ministry, of his teaching, is this kingdom. And a kingdom needs a king. And so there's an expectation going along that who's this king going to be? And if it's Jesus... What's it going to look like for him to be king? And as the gospel moves along and in the chapters right before this, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus makes some predictions. He tells his disciples, his followers, three different times he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be turned over. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to suffer. And then I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again. Some version of that, some collection of those main events of what's going to happen to Jesus. And each and every time the disciples say, what? Or they argue with him about it, and then he says, okay, look, this is what it means to follow me. And so we've got that, and we're kind of setting it up. And right before this, in fact, at the end of chapter 10, he's made another one of these predictions. Some of his disciples are arguing about it. And then he heals this blind man named Bartimaeus in the city of Jericho. And then he makes his way to Jerusalem. So that's part of the scene. Next part of the scene is to go back in history a little bit for the whole story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is God creates the world. He's the king of the world. He's the ruler of the world. And he puts people in the world to be his rulers in his place. And the story of the Bible is the story of people choosing not to do it the right way. And God's plan to restore and to restore his people into the rightful rulers they are made to be. But there's another part of the story. And so during the course of the history of the people of God, they've made for themselves kings. And they've got kings ruling over the country. 
And about 600 years before Jesus, in the year 586, there's a king named Zedekiah who's ruling over Jerusalem. And he's ruling in the empire of Babylon comes and takes the people of God into captivity. They go off into exile because they've not listened to what God has to say to them. And so they're in exile. They're away from Jerusalem. They're away from where the temple is. They're away from where everything is because you have to imagine for them, Jerusalem is everything. In Jerusalem is the city where the temple is, and the temple is the intersection of heaven and earth, of God's space and our space. It's the space where God comes and sits, and they have this almost picture, and they realize God is not literally there, but it's the sense of the, the temple represents God's presence on earth. And so to be away from Jerusalem means to be away from the presence of God. Also, Jerusalem is the capital city. It's where the king sits on his throne. And they've been promised, the people of God have been promised all along, they're going to have a king on the throne. If you don't have your capital, you can't have a king. And so they're in exile, and so they return to exile. They return from exile, I'm sorry. They return from exile, and they find the temples and ruins and all sorts of things. And two prophets come and speak to them, one named Haggai and one named Zechariah. And they speak to them about the return, and they're encouraging people. And so they're setting this up, and so you're thinking, okay, how do all these things tie together? Where does it all begin together? And I heard one pastor give a great illustration of it, and he was talking about um, his family singing lines from musicals. And I've had that same experience sometimes where um, my kids have watched a movie or they've listened to a soundtrack, or maybe you've had this experience. You hear a song on the radio, or maybe there's a, a part of a song, and you say, oh, well, I kind of like that song, whether it's from you know, the greatest showman or from the Lion King or, or whatever the latest musical is, but maybe you just know a line or two. And you think, oh yeah, I know that line, you know, let it go, right? And you're like, what, what, what is this song? And, and you say, what? But then if you finally see the movie, if you finally see the musical, it makes a lot more sense because you hear the whole song, but you also know where the song fits in the story. And why does that make a difference? Because in this passage, we're going to hear part of a song. A song, a prophecy that Jose, um, Zechariah speaks, a, a prophecy from the, God, or from the Psalms. And so there's this song. And so I want us to be thinking about how all these pictures fit together. So we have God's people always intending to be His rulers. We have this history of the kings and, and God promising there will be a king one day. But now they've been 600 years without a king. The last king was hauled off into captivity. But there's this promise that the prophet Zechariah said that one day the king will return to Jerusalem. And so we begin the story. And we have Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem. Now he's been up in the north. He's been up as far north as Caesarea Philippi, kind of the farthest regions of where the people of God lived at that time, and he's been making his way slowly to Jerusalem, and that's really all through his ministry, all through his life, that's been his end destination. That's the place where he's headed. And so he comes down, and he makes his way, and he's in Jericho, and then he comes, it says, through Bethany and Bethphage, and Bethany is just about two miles outside, and then through Bethphage, and he begins to enter in, and he most likely is entering in around the time of Passover, and the festival of Passover was the great, it, it was the big celebration of the people of God where they remembered the event in history where God had rescued his people from slavery. 
And so they would come and they would celebrate. And scholars debate that probably around that time, the city of Jerusalem had maybe 40,000, 50,000 people in it. And I've seen various estimates, but during the festival of Passover, people were, would make a pilgrimage all on foot to the city of Jerusalem. And that was even written by some of the rabbis that they were encouraged to walk if they could to Jerusalem and to walk up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was always seen, Jerusalem sits on a hill, but you always went up to Jerusalem. They were encouraged to go up to Jerusalem. And some scholars say maybe 150, 200,000, some put it as high as 500,000 people would travel to Jerusalem during the festival of Passover. So Muskegon is what, 40, 50,000? I mean, that's probably about the size. So imagine that population. Now take that and make it a city of 500,000. And just imagine all the people streaming in and all these people coming. And so Jesus is coming in in the midst of that. Well, he's coming into the midst of a particular setting because what else would happen at that time? If there's a big festival like that going on and all those people are there, what happens when you get big crowds of people together? There's trouble usually, isn't there? Especially when, what's the celebration all about? The celebration all is all about God setting His people free, God freeing His people from slavery, God freeing His people from bondage. Well, the people of God aren't free at this moment in time. They live under the rule of Rome. This is a Roman prefecture. They're under the rule of Rome. And so the Romans are a little bit worried, thinking, yeah, if you're going to have a rebellion, if there's going to be a revolt, it just might happen during the time of Passover. And so frequently what would happen is during the festival of Passover was the Roman governor, who at this time was a man named Pontius Pilate, would come from his, where he normally ruled. He normally was at a place called Caesarea. Not the Caesarea I mentioned earlier, it's confusing. There were two cities called Caesarea. There was Caesarea Philippi up in the north, and then there was Caesarea by the sea, which was where Pilate had his normal palace, his mansion that he ruled from. And so Caesarea... In other words, the city of Caesar, the city of Rome. Pontius Pilate would come from there to Jerusalem because if there was going to be a revolt, Pontius Pilate wanted to be there. So Pilate would come with a battalion of Roman soldiers and he would lead this, this march and they would come from the west and enter into the city of Jerusalem with the Roman legions marching behind him as a reminder to the people of Jerusalem that you do not want to have a rebellion right now. And they would march through the streets of Jerusalem and they would go to the Antonian Fortress. And the Antonian Fortress was this giant fortress that the Romans had built and it sat up on a hill so that it could look down into the courts of the Jewish temple. Because if there was going to be the start of something, where would it be? In the holy place. And so the people of God, the Jewish people, they would go in, and when they were in the courtyards of the temple, they could look up, and they knew that Pilate and the Romans were watching over them. And why is this significant? Because Pilate is coming from the west with his armies of Rome and entering in the gates of Jerusalem. Meanwhile, from the east, Jesus is coming. And we're told the story of Jesus coming in we're going to come back to the whole story of you know, him sending people ahead and getting the donkey and stuff. But we want to come to the part where he goes, so he's, he begins riding in and it says, 
When they brought the colt out, Jesus threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. So here's Jesus coming in from the east, riding on a donkey, which is one, a little bit unique because most of the other pilgrims would have been walking. That was the way it was. So Jesus is making an intentional thing. And if you were to look through the rest of the Gospels, we never see Jesus riding. Jesus walks. And so Jesus seems to be making an intentional statement. He seems to be doing something to make a statement and draw attention. And the people are throwing their cloaks, and this was oftentimes something done as a respect out of royalty. And he comes in, and then it says they cut down branches and they throw them on the streets. And then they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. That's from Psalm 118. And so that idea of the song, this is part of a bigger song about God coming to rescue his people. Now Mark doesn't tell us, but the fact that Jesus comes riding on a donkey comes from the prophet Zechariah. Remember that prophet who had written when the people of God were rebuilding the temple? And so Zechariah chapter 9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a coal, the foal of a donkey. And so sometimes, I know I grew up and I always think, oh, well, Jesus rode on a donkey because that was kind of this meek little thing. And it was like he was riding in the Prius and, and, and Pilate was coming in the big tank and riding in and there was a contrast. But riding on a donkey wasn't necessarily, we think of it as like this lowly thing. And really, it was a royal, it was a royal animal. There wasn't anything kind of a lowly thing I mean, I think the only time, has anybody ever ridden on a donkey? Okay, random, random stories here. See, this is how my brain works. Every once in a while, these random stories pop in. I remember when, when we were growing up, there was this popular thing, and maybe they, I think it just is a Midwest thing, like donkey basketball or donkey baseball. They would have these, like, groups of people come around, and they would come out, and you'd play baseball, or you'd try and, you know, play basketball riding on a donkey. And it was like, it just... And you think, and when I think of Jesus riding on a donkey, that's the kind of images that pop in my head. It's like, why, why in the world would somebody ride a donkey? This is just like, I mean, if you're going to come into a city, you want to ride a big stallion, you want to ride a big white horse, and you want to have the, you know, the, the Aladdin, the giant parade coming in with all the things going on. And so we think, oh, Jesus is riding on a donkey. But Jesus is making a statement here that he is the king. He's calling back to that song from Zechariah. He's calling back to that prophecy and saying, remember when Zechariah said that? When Zechariah said, shout, arise, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes riding on a donkey. And after that, it talks about how I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The picture in Zechariah is the king appointed by God finally coming to Jerusalem and taking his place, and he's riding on a donkey. And so when Jesus sends people ahead and says, get me a donkey and ride in, there might have been a few lights going off saying, oh, wait, Jesus is saying something here. And even if the people in the crowd didn't get it, even if the disciples didn't get it, he wants us to get it, that Jesus is saying, I am the one that Zechariah was talking about. I am the one that people have been waiting for. I'm coming to set people free. And the people are shouting, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of God. And Hosanna is this um, word that means save us, although by that time, it probably was just kind of a generic 
of praise. I mean, the, 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 the idea behind it, so sort of like um, we sometimes use word, you know, praise the Lord, right? And we say it, oh, praise the Lord. And if I say that, it's not like I'm literally commanding you to praise the Lord, right? But it's just this kind of like, oh, praise the Lord. It's, it's a general expression of good, you know, God is good and great. And so the people are shouting Hosanna. And so it seems like maybe they have a sense of what's going on. But who are these people? Well, again, we sometimes think it's this, these crowds in Jerusalem. But if you read the story, Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem until verse 11. Who is the crowd? The crowd is the crowd that's come with him from Jericho. It's this group of people. So in truth, it probably wasn't a huge crowd. It was some of his disciples and some of his followers, they're coming in. And we got to remember again, Jesus coming in from the east, Pilate coming in from the west, probably not at the same time. There's 500,000 people in the city. So this entrance of Jesus probably doesn't make a big splash. I mean, I always had these images growing up of this big thing and the whole city of Jerusalem turns out and they're lining the streets. If we read the story, not sure that's what really happens. It's more this smaller crowd, this little crowd coming in. And the thing that gets me, especially in Mark, is so here's this big thing and we have a picture of this great parade and all these things going on, all the people excited. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's it. I mean, like, here's Zechariah, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king is coming, riding on a donkey. Jesus comes in, yeah, looks good, and leaves. You say, what in the world is going on here? I mean, if he's the king... You might be thinking, some of the people are thinking, is that all you're going to do? Because if we know the rest of the story, we do, we know that that's not how Jesus becomes king. Jesus doesn't become king by coming in with an army. Jesus doesn't come in by conquering the Romans. How will Jesus become king? And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next six months. Jesus will become king. His enthronement is when they hang him on a cross. Jesus becomes king by dying. And that's the story he's been telling his followers all along. The Son of Man must go, suffer many things, be crucified, and after three days rise again. He says it not once, not twice, but three times. He's telling them, this is how I become king. And then he invites his followers to embrace that same way, to embrace the way of the cross but our tendency is to want the glory. I mean, we want the king to ride in and we want these things. And I think even sometimes we look around and we're excited when we hear about public figures. And, you know, before the Super Bowl, I remember reading articles and it would say, oh, the top five Christian athletes to watch during the Super Bowl. And you think, why? What's this? Be? Because we like to be in the spotlight. We like when Christians are, are in the spotlight and we want to say, oh, look, my favorite actor, he's a follower of Jesus. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing that they're followers of Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. But sometimes we get so excited that somebody famous is a Christian because we think, oh, look, there's somebody who's famous. There's somebody who's got power. There's somebody who's got glory. And Jesus says, that's not what glory looks like. 
Jesus says that's not what power looks like. The way of Jesus is not about being at the center of power. He's coming in as to be the king. And meanwhile, there's another ruler. There's Pilate. There's also this other king of Jer Jerusalem who's Herod Antipas. So there's all these other kings. And Jesus says, my kingdom doesn't look like that. But we tend to want that. We tend to think that that's how we bring the kingdom of God, that if we have a seat at power, if we can just have the glory, then all things will be good. And Jesus is saying, no. The way of Jesus is not about being at the center of power. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we clinging, are we always searching to be at the center of power? Are we wanting to be at the center of power? Or where are we instead? Are we following the way of Jesus? See, because Jesus was at the margins. But just before this, he comes and he's, he's paying attention to this blind man sitting beside the road. We'll go back, just the end of chapter 10. They came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. So this is the kind of king who notices the roadside beggar. Who notices the guy at the Sherman exit with the little cardboard sign? Who notices the people that are there that we look by, look over? And Bartimaeus then, after Jesus heals him, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He recognizes him. He says, and he says, so um, Bartimaeus then, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you, they say to the blind man. He says, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his fight, sight and followed Jesus along the road. So Jesus noticed is the outcast. He notices the people along the way and they join in and they follow him. Jesus is not seeking power in the same way that we do. Jesus doesn't see glory like we do. Instead, he says, this is what it looks like. So now I want to go back to this other part of the story. And there's this part of the story you think, what's going on here? So early on in the story, Jesus tells two of his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, which is kind of the significance of the kings often riding these unridden colts. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and he will send you back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them, and the people let them go. And you think, so it's like Jesus says, here's what's going to happen, and then we kind of get a repeat of the thing. And we say, well, was Jesus just this, you know, was this some sign of his prophecy? I don't think it was that. I think Jesus had planned this out. I think Jesus had a sense of, I'm going to go in and I need a, a cult. And you've got to imagine now these two disciples of Jesus. And I like to imagine that maybe it's James and John, because just a little bit earlier, James and John, the brothers of Zebedee, had asked Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left hand in the place of glory when you come in? And Jesus says, I don't think you're up for that. And so then Jesus says, I'm going to teach you guys a lesson. i got a job for you. And you see James and John like, okay, what do you want us to do, Jesus? I want you to go up in the town up there. Okay, are we going to gather the armies? No, I want you to go and I want you to find me a doggy. What? And you're going to go 
and you're just going to find one tied up, and I want you to take that one. And now, I want you to put yourself in their place until Jesus fills it. He says, okay, so Jesus, you want me to go into a strange town, and I'm going to find just a donkey tied up there, and you want me to just take it. Because generally, that doesn't go over very well. I mean, imagine if I told you, I want you to go down to Muskegon, and when you go in there, you're going to see a car parked there, and the keys are going to be in the ignition. And I want you to take the car, and I want you to bring it to me. In fact, I want you to go down to the car lot, and there's going to be a brand new car sitting there that nobody's ever driven, and I want you to bring that to me. And you're thinking, no, I don't think so. And when you get in the car, somebody's going to stop you and say, what are you doing? Yeah, somebody's going to stop you and say, what are you doing? And then you're going to say, well, the Lord needs it. And that's exactly what they do. And so what is the world and why is this story going on? And I think what's going on, there was a scholar named Tom Long who said, he refers to these guys as the donkey fetchers. Because I think what Mark may be getting at is that he's helping us understand our part in the kingdom. Because sometimes we have that same idea. We think Jesus should come in and there should be all this glory and all these wonderful things going on. And we think we should have a big part of that. We should be riding beside Jesus. We should be shouting. We should be doing. And sometimes our part in the kingdom is to just go get the donkey. That it's not always exciting enough, but it's simply to do what Jesus has called us to do. Even sometimes when it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Even when it seems kind of odd. And so the question for us maybe is to say, when we think about participating in the kingdom of God, when we think about participating in God's rule and reign, do we think of it as something glorious, something big? Or are we content when Jesus gives us the donkey fetcher job? Are we content when Jesus calls us to do something that seems a little bit odd? When we're called to love the least and the last, when we're called to reach out to the poor, when we're called, just like Jesus, to reach out into the people on the margins, when we're called not to sit at the seat of power and in the center of glory, but off on the sidelines. And that's what the kingdom of God looks like. It doesn't always look like there will be a day. There will be a day when Jesus will come back and there will be glory and there will be power and all that. But in the meantime, the kingdom of God looks like a king riding on a donkey coming in with just a small group and at the end of the day, takes a look around the temple and leaves. The kingdom of God looks like a couple of disciples going and trusting in what Jesus has said to bring him back a donkey. And so for us, the kingdom of God looks like saying, what has Jesus called me to do? And even if I think it's a little bit odd, even if I think it's a little bit strange, even if I think it might be a little bit awkward, but what is Jesus calling me to do to be a part of his kingdom? Am I willing to simply be a donkey fetcher? Am I willing to be somebody who will just go and do that little task? Because that was all part of the big plan, wasn't it? 
Sometimes we think, oh, I don't know, what, that, what, what, how significant is that? That can't be that big of a thing. That can't be much of anything. But this was a big part. This was all fit into what Jesus wanted to do. And it's the same with us. Sometimes Jesus invites us to do something. We think, well, really? I, I, wanted, I wanted to be at center stage, Jesus. I wanted to be marching with you. I wanted to be shouting your name. I wanted to be storming the castle. I wanted to be taking down Pilate. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go get a donkey. Can we say, okay, Jesus, that's what you're calling me to do. This is a picture of the kingdom of God and a reminder once again that the kingdom does not look like what we think it looks like. That it is not always about the kind of glory we conceive, but it's a glory that gives and gives. It's a glory that sets aside and follows Jesus in the way of the cross. He's willing to lay down our lives. And so Jesus invites us to be a part of that kingdom, to join him in bringing that very kingdom. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to bring your kingdom. And God, you've asked us to participate in it. We pray that as you give us an assignment in the kingdom, that we would be eager that we would be obedient. God, help us to respond to the call of your kingdom, whatever it may be, because you are the king, the king who laid down his life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.